Mark chapter 1. I was asked sometime within the last year to, I can't remember whether it was here, it might have been, you know, might have been across the way there in, in Maggie's during an interview or, or something like that. I was asked what my favorite verse was. And I remember reading this verse, uh, or, or this, this verse came out of me. I hadn't thought in advance what's my favorite verse. I better have that ready. But th- this sort of instinctively was what came out. This is a verse that has, has really profoundly affected my life and my walk with God. And I can remember whatever context it was in, whenever I said the verse, there was a few looks around the room, whether it was here or somewhere else, I can't remember, but a few people around the room, and you could just tell, that's a bit of a funny verse to, to hold as, as one of your favorites. It's Mark chapter 1, and it's verse 35. Reuben, I have it on a slide there. If you want to fire it up on the screen, it should be easy to find beside the announcements. It says in, in, in my Bible here, verse 35, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now that seems maybe like a slightly odd one to have just tattooed on your mind and to have as one of your life verses that just does not shift, does not leave you. I have a little book at home. I was looking for it last night. It's somewhere in a box. I have a little red prayer journal from about 15 years ago. And I have this verse written on the front of it. And also on the front of it, I have a, a quote, which, which again is, is, is coming soon. Uh, there it is. I think this is one of the most <laughs> profound things I've ever read. It was way back quite early in the journey for me, um, and I was reading a guy called E.M. Bounds, who wrote a lot of books about prayer, really, really good books. And in, in one of his books, which is called Power Through Prayer, this is, this is on the first page, or the, within, within the first couple of pages. When, whenever I read man, think men and women, okay? This was, this was a while ago. Man is God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. In other words, man man is God's method. Man is the way that God gets things done. Men and women, through people, that's how God achieves his purposes. Man is God's method. The church is looking for better methods. We continually get sidelined slightly thinking... Um, how can we improve this? How can we do this better? What can we do that's new and different? How can we launch this? How can we do that? All of those things have their place. But sometimes the church can get really distracted by trying to put on big things, glitzy things, things that will attract people. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men and better women. Now chew on that for a while. Maybe stick it out, post it up somewhere later so that you can, you can remember it. God is looking for better men. Very early in my Christian life, I was really burdened. I did not start following Jesus until I was 21. And I was really burdened very early about cultivating a deep life of intimacy with God. I did not have to be told to do that. It was instinctive. I wanted to know him. I wanted to know him. I didn't want to just go to church. I didn't want to just get into heaven. I didn't want to just try to be good. I wanted to know him. I wanted a dynamic life of walking with him in the word and in prayer. 
I wanted to hear his voice. And as a young man in my early 20s, I started to put some disciplines into place in my life in order to achieve that. And I was excited about it, okay? It was not drudgery. It's not, oh, I'm a Christian now and these are the things that I should do because somebody told me. I wanted to put these things in place in order to, to know God. One of the things that I did was started to get up at ludicrously early hours of the day. Um, and in fact, I can remember at one stage in between finishing university and there was about two years between me finishing my university course and doing my PGCE and I was working in Balamina for those two years. And I can remember one summer in particular getting up every morning all summer at half four <laughs> to seek God. And I had this sort of table laid out in the front room back in my parents' house and I had this this sequence of things that I worked through and I read a bit of Spurgeon and I read some chapters of the Bible and I prayed and I had my notebook and it was just class. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And and another discipline that I put in was reading the Bible in large portions, not just the one little verse, (laughs) because the one little verse sometimes comes at you almost like a horoscope. You know, no anybody anywhere on any particular day reading that verse is going to feel good. Okay, it just it it can be so vague, and I and I disciplined myself. I wanted to read read large portions of scripture. I did not just want to have a verse that made me feel good as I went to work. I wanted to know the story. This is real. This is historically real. This is how God moved with His people. And I wanted to know it. And I love stories. I love movies that are demanding and rigorous in their plot. I love stories and I wanted to know the story, the big picture. I didn't want the Bible to be this daunting, large book where you had all this stuff going on and you couldn't piece it together. You couldn't understand the timeline of it all. I wanted to know it. Where does it all fit together? It was my story and I wanted to understand it. Another thing that I did that was, that was a bit odd and got some strange looks was fasting. I started to fast. I remember telling my mum the first time I was fasting, saying, Mom, I don't want to eat dinner tonight. And she looked at me a bit odd. No one had ever told me that, but I read it in this book that I found. And I thought, if, if it says it in here, I'll do it and see what happens. And I started to introduce this discipline of fasting and seeking God. And I would highly recommend it. And just setting time aside and and pushing every distraction away, even the delights of food, and seeking his face. And another thing that I did was I learned how to pray. And that's the main focus of what I want to talk about this morning, is prayer. I think table is thriving in a lot of areas. We are getting a lot of contact with unchurched people regularly through different things that are that are going on different connections that are being developed lovely to see it i've I've tried to to urge on you for the past year or more that it's not all about sunday morning that people can encounter jesus on a friday night or on a thursday morning or at bird table with the ladies or whatever that it does not it's the be all and end all is not getting somebody here on a sunday morning the be all and end all is getting them to encounter jesus i don't care when that happens right and we are we are having more and more contact with people who do not know jesus or who have 
in the past had some sort of an experience of church but have walked away and they're coming back and they're becoming curious. We're experiencing a bit of growth. The powers of darkness will raise their game, are raising their game. And church, we must raise ours. We must raise our game. The novelty period is over where we sort of dance around each other and we're all nice and kind and pleasant as we get to know each other. The honeymoon's over. This is not a church plant anymore. Do not refer to it as a church plant. This is a church. Okay, a church plant is a new thing. A church plant is something in its early stages getting established. This is a church and it is time for us to raise the game, put on the armor and really declare war. Really declare war. Because what we are dealing with in this town and in every place where we want to bring the kingdom of God, we have got to to waken up to the reality of spiritual darkness. You are not fighting against flesh and blood. There are strongholds and there are dark things that govern the atmosphere of a town. And that's what we are battling against. And if we think we can do it with prayer lives that are feeble and small and a prayer room that is unoccupied, we are kidding ourselves. We must raise our game and get onto the front line and get a bit of fight into us if we want to see things change. I don't know how many adults there are in this room. That's debatable. (laughs) Um, But there are, I don't know, there there might be 25, might be 30 there's one or two that it's just, I'm not quite sure yet. <laughs> it should be, but you just wonder sometimes. But with that number of adults in the room, that number of people who, who are Christians, we should be able to put somebody in the prayer room for an hour a day. We should. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but if it's happening, that's, that's all right. We should be able to put somebody in the prayer room for an hour a day. If you haven't tried it yet, I dare you. It's a thin place. The old Celtic spirituals of years and centuries ago used to talk about thin places. Places where there had been so much prayer that it seemed like the veil between earth and heaven was thinner. You just felt like you were closer to God in those places. And I have had this, I think it was, it was a guy called Pete Gregg, or Pete, Pete Gregg, sorry, reading his book, Uh, Punk Monk, years ago, he introduced me to this concept of thin places. Places of encounter. And I want this to be a thin place. I can pray in there in a way that I cannot pray at home. Unless there is nobody else in the house. If I was to pray in there, if I was to pray at home the way I pray in there, the kids would be saying, Mommy, there's something wrong with Daddy. (laughs) There are strange noises coming from upstairs. I came in here on Friday night, snuck in under cover of darkness uh, at about half eight, locked the doors for fear of teenagers arriving, uh, even though a, a good few of them were away. I locked the doors, I left all the lights off, I went into the prayer room, and I literally got on my face before God in this place. Nobody else was here, I hope. And I cried out to God. And it was powerful. I see once you're in there and you're in that posture and in that position, you don't leave easily. I had to leave because I had parental responsibilities to pick up children. But once you're in there, 
whether it's there or whether it's home in your private place of prayer or whatever it is, once you're in there and you're really doing business with God, it is hard to pull yourself away. And I laid hold on God for men and women in this room. I didn't just pray, you know, bless Linda and bless the children and, and let's have a good day tomorrow and, and amen. I wrestled with God. I wrestled with God. I cried out to Him. I prayed in English. I prayed in tongues. I prayed every way I know how to pray. There were times of silence. There were times I read the word. There were times I was literally shouting. And times I was just sitting there or lying there. Praying. Mark 1.35 Very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went to a solitary place where He prayed. I love that picture. I love it. Very early. And I hear people say that it doesn't matter when you pray, as long as you pray, I'm not really a morning person. Well, there's some truth in that, you know, and some people will pray much more effectively at night than they do in the morning and, and this and that. Jesus prayed in the morning. Give it a shot if you can. Okay? Give it a shot if you can. Some of you can't because shifts, shift work means you just can't do that. And some of you can't because your, your schedule at the minute is dictated by very young children. And, you know, whatever they need to get, they need to get at any particular time. But you know what? If you can, if it's within your ability to shift your schedule, to get up early and to seek him while the world is still relatively quiet, do it. It's magic. It's precious time. Sometimes people say to me, why do you get up so early in the morning? I say, it's the only time I can really get quietness and peace. I can't get it late at night. Distractions keep coming. Jesus took himself away early in the morning to seek God. And he went to a solitary place. Another thing that can be so hard to find in our lives is solitude. And I say that taking seriously the fact that some people are very lonely. And I think recently the government appointed a minister for loneliness in the cabinet because 9 million people in the UK are suffering from loneliness. That in itself is an indictment against the church that there are people who are completely on their own. But it's hard to find solitude in this busy, noisy life. I picked up Samuel from BBE on, on Thursday night and one of the officers was at the door and she said to me, it's a, it's a cold night. I come in with a... With a fleece on and I had a woolly hat on and she said to me it's cold, cold tonight isn't it and I says ah, it's right and cold sitting out in the car out there and she said Why did you, were you sitting out there the whole time and I said yeah I was um, and she said you should have come in you should have come in and gone into the kitchen you could have had a cup of tea and sat down and waited in there and I thought to myself if only you knew how precious it was to sit <laughs> in silence for an hour with no distractions and no noise even if it's cold it's beautiful Jesus found a place where he was away and he was on his own, away from Peter and James and John and all their silly conversations. And it says at the end of the verse, he prayed. Luke has a lot to say about Jesus praying in his gospel. Jesus was praying at his baptism when the Holy Spirit came on him. Jesus was praying in the wilderness for 40 days when the devil tempted him and he won the victory. And he bound the devil in the wilderness. 
Let me talk about that some morning. He didn't bind Satan at the cross. He bound him in the wilderness. And then he went and wreaked havoc in Satan's kingdom. He prayed all night in Luke chapter 6 before he called the 12 disciples. All night long. He prayed in chapter 9 when he was transfigured. He prayed in chapter 22 in Gethsemane. And he prayed even while he was being murdered. He was a man of prayer. And if he prayed so much, how much more do we need to pray? Do you have the discipline every day of seeking God? Do you have it? If the answer is yes, I commend you and I would encourage you, step it up. Keep it up, step it up. If the answer is no, there's something really wrong. (laughs) Really wrong. I frequently think of, of reading God's word as inhaling and praying as exhaling. Inhale, exhale, breathing, alive in the Spirit of God. Now, if you stop doing either one of those in in the physical world, stop inhaling or stop exhaling, see what happens pretty quickly. You die. And if a Christian is not inhaling the Word and exhaling in prayer, that Christian's dead. Now, hear me. And if that offends you, Let that just offend you. Let it rattle around for a while. If you're holding your breath and you're not breathing out to God, you are dead. You're in an exceptionally dangerous position because you have a degree of knowledge of God and you go along to church and you maybe feel okay that you're doing the right things, but you're dead and you think you're alive. You're not breathing. It's an exceptionally dangerous position to be in. People say that prayer changes things. But prayer more so, it changes you. It changes your attitudes. It changes your character. As you get before God every day, He chips away and He works on you and He changes you into what He wants you to be. Whenever I encounter people who say they've walked with God for 10 years or whatever, and yet still there's these horrible attitudes in their heart and in their speech and in their conduct towards others. I know that there's no secret place of prayer because if there was, those attitudes would be dealt with. God would be changing them. And maybe, you know, we, we say as well that, you know, that Jesus changes us. And I, and I think to be more specific about that, I don't think Jesus changes us. I think Jesus invites us to die and then he raises us up different. Like what we saw with Peter last week when Peter got out of that boat that was sinking with all the fish in it and he fell down before Jesus on his knees and he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. When he got up, he was different. And when we go to that place of daily prayer and seeking God, we will get up and we will go forth into the day different than we were when we went down. Proverbs says in in Proverbs 15, 8, that the prayer of the upright is his delight. You realize you can bring delight to God. Think about that. When the alarm goes tomorrow morning and you think tomorrow I'm going to, I'm going, I'm going to just try an extra 15 minutes. I'm going to try to discipline myself to be with Jesus as the day begins. You actually bring delight to him. And you think of who he is, his majestic, incredible God that we serve. 
who created all things, all the beauty that is within us and is so visible throughout the room, the beauty of, of creation and humanity, the beauty that is out there, the God who sits enthroned over all of that and keeps it going by the power of his word, you can do things that cause him to be delighted. That's a beautiful thing. As I pray in the morning, as I seek him, I'm bringing delight to him. I'm making him joyful. I have the ability to make him joyful by praying. And I believe praying people then get called by God. I believe the reason that we are leading this is because years ago we developed lives of disciplined prayer. It says in Psalm 14 and something similar in Isaiah 59 that God's eyes are looking across the nations to see if there are any who seek him. He's looking for people who will seek him. And when he sees people that are actually serious about seeking him, then he says, I've got something for you to do. I see your heart. I see your posture. I see and I hear your prayers. And I've got something I want you to do. And he calls people who seek him. And then there are other people who don't seek him. And I believe he effectively says, I will not trust you with other people. Because you have not carved out that place of seeking me. And a, a, a term that you hear frequently in the church, really frequently actually, I think in the last 10 years, is you'll hear people say, I don't know what my calling is. I don't think that's a biblical phrase. I'll tell you what your calling is. Your calling is to pray and await further instructions. You discipline yourself to get into that place of prayer and see what happens next. The fireworks will start going off. He will start calling you to things. But get it the right way around. Some simple practicalities about prayer. I mentioned earlier on having a prayer journal. I have a book at home. All your names are in it and I'm going to be able to add another new name today. <laughs> all your names are in it. And as I pray for you and something comes up, I'll scribble something down beside a name. I want to target that thing for that person. Have a journal of prayer. Keep record of when you started praying for something and when the burden lifted or when the answer came. Regarding the prayer meeting on Tuesday night at 7.45 in this very building, put it in your phone. You know your phone that you love so much? There's a thing on it called a calendar. And you can put in the event and then repeat weekly. So instead of you arriving at Tuesday afternoon thinking, oh, look how busy I am. I'm not going to make it tonight. Whenever somebody asks you to do something Tuesday night, you look at your calendar and say, I'm already booked on Tuesday night. It's a simple discipline, but it's a discipline. It's about priorities. It's not about making up life. So, so many people make up life as we go along. We just literally blunder through from one day to the next without any structure or organization. Start putting things in and just saying, I'm not available on that occasion because I'm doing something more important. And in terms of a structure or a model for prayer, a lot of, there are a lot of models out there. A lot of books present these models. You pray like this, pray like that. They all have their merits. But I know this guy called Jesus and he gave us a model for prayer. And I think if we stick with that, we'll not go far wrong. <laughs> The, the, the prayer that he taught the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, 
that all of us have known and we've probably recited it to the point that it maybe doesn't have the impact that it should have. That is your model for prayer. Use that. Split that up and use it as you pray, as you pray for yourself, as you pray for your family, as you pray for your others. Use that prayer. Use that structure. And there's one phrase that I want to pull out of it. I don't want to go through the whole thing this morning, but there's one phrase, and I would ask you to incorporate this phrase into your prayer vocabulary and start to get it in there. You'll probably hear me pray it again and again and again, and I want you to start really praying it. It is pure dynamite. It is the phrase, thy kingdom come. I will pray again and again and again, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Do you have any realization the sheer danger (laughs) that there is in playing with words like that? Let your kingdom come. That's going to wreck the place. You can pray that in so many contexts. What does it look like for the kingdom to come? I remember doing a series about the kingdom of God about maybe a year and a half ago. And without going into too much, we are living in the overlap of two ages. We are living in this present age with all its suffering and all its hurt and all the things that we know are not of God. And we also know that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. And we're living in the overlap between those two ages. Jesus brought the kingdom of God. When he came, he said, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is among you. We live in that overlap, still in the present age, but we have glimpsed the future age that has broken in in Jesus. And whenever I pray, one of the things I visualize is I am on my knees with my knees on the earth in this present age, but I am reaching into the age to come and I am saying, God, bring your kingdom into this situation. Whenever you pray for healing, look look at Revelation 21. Whenever you pray for healing, for example... You're praying, thy kingdom come. That's what you're praying for somebody. Whenever Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, thy kingdom come, he has absolutely given us the authority to pray for people who are sick because Revelation 21 tells us a wee bit about what the future kingdom will look like what the new Jerusalem, the new city of God will look like. It says in verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Whenever I lay hold on God and I pray for someone who is sick, I'm saying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Your future kingdom is a place of health and life where there is no suffering and there are no tears. Lord, let your kingdom break in to this particular situation. Let your kingdom come. Still in Revelation 21, here's another thing that you might might think I'm pushing here, but I don't think I'm pushing. When I pray, Lord, let your kingdom come in this town, that's a prayer against the drug dealers. Let me show you why that is. In verse 8, in Revelation 21, we read some things that will not be in the future kingdom. Some people who will not be there. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral. There's another prayer. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let the sexually immoral be removed from this town. Those who would do damage, let them be taken away. Let your kingdom come. You understand? That's a kingdom prayer. 
in the future, those people will not be in the kingdom of God. Lord, let your kingdom come now to Tandragee and take them away. Take them away so that people would be safe, so that children would be safe. And in the, in the same phrase, he goes on and says, those who practice magic arts, magic arts. Older versions of the Bible says those who practice sorcery or witchcraft. And the Greek word is pharmakia. Pharmakia. With a PH, not with an F. Pharmakia. With an F, it's all right. With a PH. Pharmakia is a Greek word from which we get the word pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, stuff like that. What's that to do with? That's to do with taking things that affect how our body functions. That's good in medicine. We take a chemical, we take a drug, it affects the function of the body and it makes us feel better, makes us feel well, helps us fight disease, whatever. But, of course, there are things you can take and put into your body that will alter your state of mind, that will cause you to hallucinate, that will cause you to feel different, talk different, act different, recreational drugs, trees, buckets, what are they called? Pollen, they're called dope, weed, crack... Just a million different names that they have for them. They will not be in the kingdom. And when I pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, I'm praying against the people who sell them and wreck people's lives by giving them to them. Lord, let your kingdom come. Get that phrase into your praying and just hang it over everything. Ask the future kingdom to break in. You know, if there, there's, a, there's a little story in Numbers chapter 16. Go to, if, if you wouldn't mind, number 16. I've mentioned this before last year one time, but just to, this again is a, is a fantastic picture of, of what, what prayer does. It's at the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and the, the context is that God's people have been struck with a plague and they are going to die. They are dying. And in verse 46 of Numbers 16, Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did, visualize this in your mind, okay? Visualize what, you know, can you see the altar? Can you see the crowd, the people who are dying? Can you see Moses and Aaron? Visualize it. In verse 47, Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood, look at this, this is class. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. That's prayer. Whenever I am in that place, knees on earth, hands reaching into the kingdom and saying, thy kingdom come, I am at an altar and I am getting fire so that I can go and stand between the living and the dead. That's prayer. The problem is an awful lot of God's people have no fire. They have no incense. They have nothing to offer. When they go and stand between the living and the dead, they're empty-handed. There's no altar. There's no discipline of prayer. But you know what? When you, have, when you have that place and you have got that from God, 
and you then go out into the world or into your ministry or whatever it may be, you've got something that causes the plague to stop. And we need that. The early church in Acts 2 were devoted to four things. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I would say any church that's not devoted to those four things straight away is not a church. Not a church. We must be devoted to prayer. What are you devoted to? Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, the first couple of verses, and he says, first priority is to make prayers for all men. That's your first priority, Timothy. Call the people to pray. Are you praying for your ministry? Those of you that lead ministries, are you praying for your ministry? You're praying for the praise team. You're praying for table tots and the kids and mums that come. You're praying for the teenagers that come on Friday night. You're praying for the, the girls and the ladies that come to bird table. You're praying for the kids that come on a Sunday morning for children's ministry. Because if you don't pray for it, here's what's going to happen. You run out of steam. It will fail. And you'll feel dejected and you'll not do it again. And those who are involved in it will be left confused. You must pray over your ministry. I want to finish in, in Haggai. If, I'll give you 10 minutes to find it. Haggai is, is at, the, at the end of the Old Testament. Two little chapters. And in here, again, is... It's something that's not directly spoken of in the context of prayer, but I think it's a powerful picture of what prayer actually is. Now, I want you to hold these verses. I haven't done too much today in terms of covering lots of Bible today, but I want you to hold Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and keep it. Write it down in your journal if you have one. If you don't have one, when you buy one tomorrow, write it down in it. Also regarding the prayer room, just while it's in my mind, Stefan found a really nifty little app called Team Up. And Stefan, maybe today you'll post the link again. And it's just a dead handy way of finding, you know, arranging to be in the prayer room. Really handy, simple little app. Uh, the only thing you're allowed to fight about in table is who's in the prayer room. All right, you can fight up, you can squabble among yourselves about who's going to be in at a certain time. Nothing else is, uh, is tolerated in terms of your, your squabbling. Haggai chapter 1, the background is that the, the, the people have returned from exile, they started to build the temple, they were discouraged and they were ordered by others to stop building and they have stopped building and they've done nothing for a long period of time. And the prophet Haggai comes with the word of God and he says to them, it says in verse 4, this is, this is God speaking through Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin. In other words, he is challenging their priorities. All of your effort, he says, all of your effort is going into your own comfort, your own life, your own home, your own surroundings, and God's house is being neglected. 
It is not a priority. The temple was not a priority for these people. And Haggai doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't say to them, you need to knock your house down and live in a dirty old shack in a field. He just says, get your priorities right. Get yourself focused on the house of God. And verse 5, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, I've only got a few minutes left, so give me all you got. Give careful thought to your ways. Consider your ways. He says, you've planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you're never, you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. Maybe a Sunday morning that happens. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. In other words, a whole lot of effort and no outcome. And a phrase that just, I was down here earlier on this morning and I was reading this as I was walking about praying and a phrase that just struck me is this, you have planted much but harvested little. I thought, is that the church in the West in the last couple of decades? Lots going on. Event after event after event, activity, 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 all just song and dance, huge amounts of money to keep the machine moving, huge amounts of energy, people getting burned out in leadership because there's so much going on. You have planted much, but I don't know if you can see the harvest because I can't really see it. You've planted much, but you've harvested little, church. You have got so busy but there's no real outcome. And I think the reason for it then comes in verse 8. And this is the, the picture of, of prayer that, that I see in this passage. Again, this is from years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, just reading this. When you get to the minor prophets in your reading plan and you're sort of, you're chugging through them a wee bit and then suddenly, you know, gold. Verse 7, the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. Now look at this picture. Go up the mountains. Bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. What's that got to do with prayer? Go up the mountains, bring down timber and build the house. God is talking about a physical temple that was being built. And in order to build it, they needed resources, timber. And in order to get the timber, they had to go up the mountain. And so many times in the Bible, the picture of going up the mountain is a place of prayer. For Elijah, for Moses, for Abraham, for Jesus, so many people go up the mountain to seek God. So I want you to see this going up the mountain as a call to prayer. And what will happen when you go up the mountain? You will get timber. I don't want timber. Don't bring any wood. Aaron's sick of wood. Okay. Don't bring any wood. But resources to build the house for God. This is not the house of God. The bricks and mortar and tiles and whatever, not the house of God. This is a convenience to have a place to meet. You are the house of God. You're the temple. I'm the temple. Individually, 
I carry his presence and you carry his presence. Collectively, that gets magnified when we're together and we, we come together as living stones and we are collectively the temple. And what Haggai says, if you want to see the, the presence of God come and dwell among his people, you need to go up the mountain and you need to get resources. That, for me, is a picture of prayer. The effort and the discipline required to go to God and to get something and then bring it to build the house. I love it. Karl Barth, who was a, a theologian about oh, maybe nearly 100 years ago now, uh, he said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. Do you want to be part of an uprising? Do you want to be a revolutionary? Do you want to fight? Really fight? You know, young men in particular, do you want to fight? Because, and I, I, I don't mean just to sort of default to gurning about video games, but a lot of video games are about fighting and guys get this sort of thrill and kick out of fighting. You know, do you want a real fight? Do you want a real fight? Do you want to take on the spiritual darkness that hovers over a town? Do you want to get your hands dirty and dig some trenches and dig in for the long haul and actually fight and achieve something that will affect all eternity? Raise your game, guys. Raise your game individually and raise your game collectively because we are I reckon probably at a plateau at a ceiling that we will not get through without a surge in prayer we won't get through it and the devil doesn't give a monkeys if we just hang out here every morning have toast read the bible together sing songs 30 or 40 of us go home try to live with he doesn't care no threat no threat whatsoever He's just happy enough for us to be contained in that context. No problem. Right? For him, a lot of his work is about containment. There are Christians there, right? Let's just keep them contained so they don't infect anyone else. But whenever you clasp the hands in prayer, it is an act of war. Do you want to go to war? I do. I do. I dare you to get into the prayer room. Dare you just some night this week, some morning. Do you know what's real handy? You can go across there during the daytime if you're not working. You can go and get a nice cup of coffee and you can bring it over and go into the prayer room. Lock the doors. Lay hold on God. You will not run out of things to pray for. I remember one night, and I'm done. told you this before, but we, we were doing a prayer room in the Methodist church for 48 hours a couple of years ago, and we were splitting up the shifts between us because some poor person was going to have to do a night shift, and Mike and I took on the first night shift. Do you remember the, the 4 a.m. changeover? And I remember going in at midnight, 
because we decided just to do long shifts during the night instead of getting a whole load of people to get up. We decided to do these long shifts and I went in at 4am thinking, right, first of all, I'm going into an old church building in the middle of the night on my own and there's something a bit freaky about that. Um, hopefully there's not like a body lying in state downstairs for a funeral or something. And um, I mean, all this stuff's going through my head and it's really, really quiet. And I'm like, this is freaky. And I got in and thought, I will never be able to pray for four hours. I'll fall asleep. I'll get bored. I'll run out of stuff. I can tell you, it was just powerful. Ah, it was class. I want you to experience it because once you've experienced it, it won't be a, a, a drudgery to get into prayer. Let's pray before the guys come back. <clears throat>